Well, good evening, everybody. Great to be with you tonight. Thanks for making the trip through the Arctic to get here. It is only going to get worse. Uh, I, I'm excited to be together tonight. I, I know that this is uh, starting to feel the, the weight of impending doom as the weeks come down. So I appreciate you taking the time to, to be together. It means a lot to me. I'm really excited to be with you. We're, we're continuing our, our series. We have one more week next week where we'll be finishing up uh, our time in Colossians. We're not going to get to everything in Colossians, which I'm, uh, I am sad about. But um, covered some good ground in this series. We're calling Jesus is Enough. <laughs> Jesus is enough for us. And, and tonight we're going to see that Jesus is enough to be the one we seek. He's enough to be the one we seek. So we're going to pick up the beginning of Colossians 3. It's printed on your handout, just four verses tonight, but it would be great for you to have it in front of you uh, as I read. Please follow along with me. From Colossians 3, 1 to 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died... And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. This is God's word. It's absolutely true. He gives it to us because he loves us. Pray with me and we'll get started. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift of your word. And thank you for the gift of this time to read it together. I pray you'd be near to us in all the ways that we need and that your Holy Spirit would be at work right now through your word so we might know you more and love you more and love one another. Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. I love the, I love the movie The Matrix. And uh, in, the, in The Matrix, uh, is it starts with this guy named Mr. Anderson, who's Keanu Reeves' character. And, and pretty early in the movie, uh, Mr. Anderson is introduced to this really weird leather-clad dude with sunglasses named Morpheus. And Morpheus kind of takes Neo and, and starts telling him these crazy things. And basically what he tells him is that everything that he's ever seen, everything that he's ever tasted, everything he's ever touched, everything he's experienced in his whole life isn't real. It's actually this computer-generated construct called the Matrix. He, he says this is the world that has been uh, pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. And the truth is, is that what you see and what you experience, it's not real. And that there is beyond what you can experience this thing that's actually the real world, that's actually true. And he offers him this choice. There's this dramatic moment at the beginning of the movie where he offers him this choice. And the way he offers it is with these two pills. He's got a blue pill and he's got a red pill. And he says, if you take the blue pill, you're going to wake up tomorrow in your bed and you can believe whatever you want. But if you take the red pill... He says, you stay in Neverland, and I show you how far the rabbit hole goes, which is a great line, I think. He's basically saying this. This is a moment of truth. There's no turning back. Nothing will ever be the same. Are you content to live in a world that isn't real? Or do you want to see true life? And that kind of invitation and challenge and question is is what Paul is doing in these little four verses at the beginning of Colossians 3. He's saying... Everything that you see around you, it isn't real life. Everything that you touch and taste and smell and experience around you, there's actually something beyond this that's more true and that's more real. And that's what I want you to see. And he even, this word, seek, he commands it. Seek this thing. Seek 
the things that are above. And so the question for us is, as, as you look around at, at your life, at the things that make up your normal real life, the parties that you go to, the schoolwork that you do and the grades you get, the, the money that you're after, the jobs that you're seeking, the relationships you're pursuing, the way you think about your body, all these things that are the physical things that you see around you, are, are you content to seek after those things as true and real? Or do you want to see what real life is actually all about? Do you want to seek the things that are above? So tonight's message is going to be, is going to be pretty simple. It's that we should seek the things that are above because Jesus is our life. We should seek the things that are above because Jesus is our life. So what I want to do is I want to talk about what it means to seek. I want to talk about what are the things that are above. And then I want to talk about why we should do it. Okay? So first, what does it mean to, to seek? In verse 1 he says, seek the things that are above. And in verse 2 he says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are below. This, this word seek or set your minds, here, here's what this means. Uh, this is a, a deliberate focus of your attention and your desires. A deliberate focus of your attention and your desires. The, the attention is sort of uh, your mind, set your mind. It, it means literally think, ponder, reflect, meditate, question towards these things. Uh, you, you can think about it like a, a navigator of a sailing ship hundreds of years ago who was crossing the ocean. And he's in the ocean and he's trying to stay on course and he doesn't have any fixed points of reference, what he has is a compass. And you can imagine that if you're the navigator of a ship hundreds of years ago, you've got to pay really close attention to that compass. You've got to be looking at it all the time. You've got your hand on the tiller, but you're looking at the compass. You're talking to the rest of the crew, and then you're glancing back at the compass. You're looking to check the wind in the sails, and then you're looking back at the compass. You're eating your meal, but you've got your eyes on the compass. This sense that in order to stay on course, you've got to focus your attention on this thing all the time. That's, that's, this, that's this kind of focus, deliberate focus of attention. Setting your eyes, setting your thoughts on this thing again and again and again. And then the other aspect of it is, is our desires. And by desires, I mean the longings in the depth of your heart. The things you are yearning for in your spirit. This is, if you if you're, can picture this navigator again, he's, he's focusing his attention on the compass. The, the focusing his desires has to do with his motivation. Like, why is he so attentive to that compass? What does he want? He wants to get back across the sea safely. He wants to get back into the safe haven of that harbor. He wants to get back to his loved ones. And that longing, that desire, that yearning is the thing that is keeping his attention focused. This is what, this is what Paul is talking about when he says, seek. A deliberate focus of your attention and your desire. And he says that you're supposed to seek, you're supposed to focus your attention and desire on these things that are, things that are above. Now, when you hear above, this, this is an allusion to the things of heaven. So here's what I want to ask you. When, you. when you think of the word heaven, what, I want you to picture that for a second. Are you picturing heaven? What are you picturing? The Bible actually says like very little in terms of concrete descriptors of what this like, eternal world where, where God is. But, it does, but we are get, given in Scripture kind of the main focus of it. And we're actually given this in verse 1. It says, seek the things that are above where 
Christ is. The main thing that we know about heaven, the main thing that we know about above is that that is the place where the crucified and risen Jesus rules and reigns as king over all things. So now in above, we have Jesus. So here's what I want to do. I want to play a uh, group word association, group participation game, okay? So I'm going to say a word, and then I want you to out loud so that everyone can hear, say the first word that pops into your mind, okay? Are you with me? You guys, you have participation grades in every class, right? Can you handle this? Okay. I'm going to say a word. You're never going to guess what the word is. And then I want you to out loud say the word that comes into your mind. Are you ready? The word is Jesus. Okay, heard the right answer here, heard the right, there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer, okay? Um, if you think of the summary of who Jesus is, of what Jesus is about, of what Jesus does, the summary, that one word would be love. I think Grayson said, I think you said, some people, all right. I think it would be love, okay? No, is he Christ and God? Yeah, you guys are all right. 15% of your grade, done, you're good for the day, Okay. I think it would be, I actually think it would be love. Jesus lived a life of love. Jesus himself is the embodiment, literally the embodiment of the love of God. And Jesus lived this life of perfect obedience unto God out of love for him. And Jesus exemplified this love in the world around him as he cared for and showed compassion on the sick, on the poor, on children, on the outcasts, on the worst kind of sinners. Jesus taught that the most important thing in the whole world, if you could boil it down to one thing, it would be to love God and love your neighbor. And then, of course, the Lord Jesus committed the ultimate act of love in his death on the cross. If you want to know what love is, you look at what Jesus did on the cross, this act of sacrifice, of pouring himself out, of giving his own life away for the good of others, to save us. That's what love is. That's why Jesus can say, no greater love has anyone than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. This is what love is. Love is a sacrifice of yourself for the good of your neighbor. That's what love is. So what you said about the, the things that are above, these things that are above, which you, you can go into Philippians 4, talks, kind of goes into a, a much longer excursus on this, if there's anything that is excellent. Anything that is praiseworthy, you probably read this passage. Think about these things. But if you could summarize it, it would be the love of God in the person of Jesus. That's really the things that are above. And so what what Paul is saying to us here is, seek Jesus and the love of God in him. Deliberately focus your attention and your desires on the person of Jesus and his love. That's what you're supposed to think about. That's what you're supposed to wonder. That's what you're supposed to ponder. That's what you're supposed to meditate and reflect on. That's what you're supposed to to focus the affections and the depth of yearning of your heart on. It's actually in the love of God for you in the person of Christ Jesus. And this uh, this seeking, uh, if you're you're here and you're not a Christian, this is kind of what being a Christian means. It's to seek Jesus. This deliberate focus of your attention and your desire on Jesus is the hardest part about being a Christian. It's the hardest thing we do. 
And the reason that it's the hardest thing we do is because of what he says here. He says, set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are below, dot, dot, dot. And the problem is that the things that are below are constantly distracting and pulling away your attention and your desire away from God, away from Christ, away from self-sacrificial love. The things that are below are constantly pulling away your attention. And, and if you want to know if this is a problem for you, check out how your screen time is going on your phone. And see how many hours of the day you are spending looking at this little two by three inch piece of glass. If you want to know if this is a, if this is a problem for you, think about how much time you spend working towards and longing for the validation and affirmation that comes with good grades and the angst that comes when you have to wait and the despair that comes when you realize that you've failed at it. If you want to know that you're focusing on the things that, that are below, think about the way that uh, our desire for social position determines the way we dress, the way we act, how much we drink, how we think about sex, the kind of jokes that we laugh at and that we make, the things that we post on Instagram. Side note, Instagram is considering taking away likes. I am pumped. Side, side, side note over. Think about how much your social situation determines the way that you act. Think about the anxiety that you have over your job search whether you're getting ready to graduate or you're looking for a summer internship, and that sense that you have that if you can just get that locked in, if you can just get that job offer, if you can just get that grad school invitation, then you can breathe. Then you can be free. Then you can be at rest. Think about the constant attention that we get, give to comparing ourselves to other people. Who's more beautiful? Who's smarter? Who's harder working? Who's more popular? We give all of our attention to these sorts of things. Uh, this, this comparison, we're going we're gonna to talk about this next week. Paul says that covetousness is idolatry. That when you compare yourself to other people, what you're doing is you're actually worshiping something other than Jesus. It's a big deal. We are constantly having our attention and our desire pulled away from God and set on all these other things. The fight to seek Jesus is a really, really hard fight. This is the fight of faith. But what we're going to see and what Paul is trying to say is that it is worth fighting for. Jesus is actually the only one who is worth seeking, who's worth all of your attention and all of your desire. And the reason is that Jesus is your life. Jesus is your life. I want to read verses 3 and 4 again if you want to look at it. It says this, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. One of the things that you see a lot in the New Testament, if you read through it, one of the, one of the patterns you will see is these phrases, in Christ or with Christ. They, they happen all the time. And, and this is one of those things that can be confusing about Christianity, especially if you're, if you're not a believer or not familiar or you're a new Christian. Christians don't just believe in God and like ascend to a set of beliefs. That, that, that in Christianity, when you have faith in Christ, that the power of that faith is that through it, God unites him, himself to you. He joins you to Christ. He connects you with Jesus. That's why Paul can say in these passages and all through Colossians, if you've 
been raised with him, if you've died with him, that through faith your life is in him and his life is yours. That through faith what's true about Jesus is true about you. That through faith what's happened to Jesus has been applied to you, is connected to you because Jesus and you are now together. You've been joined together. He's now abiding in you and you in him. That means that for the Christian, there's no, no part of life that's just you alone. There's no part of life that's just you alone. That your connection with Jesus in his death and resurrection is the lens through which and the experience through which everything in your life is determined. Now, this with Christness, you being, it can sound kind of abstract. So what I want to do is I want to look at the two things that Paul kind of points out, two aspects of our life with Christ, what it means that Jesus is our life, okay? And the two things are this, our, our security and glory. I want to talk about security and glory as we finish up, okay? So first security. Here's what, here's what Paul says in verse 3. He says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's hidden. Hidden doesn't mean like impossible to find because it's tucked away in a dark corner, okay? When you see hidden, you, you think surrounded by, upheld by, protected by Jesus. Your life is surrounded by and protected by the very life of Jesus. Your hope is wrapped up in Jesus. Your stability is wrapped up in Jesus. Your future destiny is wrapped up in Jesus. You are secure because your life is hidden with Christ. And that means that without Jesus, your life is exposed and vulnerable. And I want you to imagine as if your heart was beating on the outside of your chest. Exposed and vulnerable. And with Jesus, it is protected and safe. Another way to think about it is to think of your life as a tree, which the Bible does a lot in places like Psalm 1. Your life is a tree. And, and crazy wind can come against the tree to try to knock it down. And hot sun can scorch and try to wither the leaves. But the, the life of the tree doesn't come from what's around it. It comes from what its roots are sunk deep into the soil of the love of God for you in Christ. That's how secure you are. That's how protected you are in Jesus. And, and part of the claim here is that nothing else in the world around you, all the stuff that you can see and taste and touch, none of it makes you safe. None of it makes you secure. None of it is good enough or strong enough. That means that even if you are one of those rare unicorns who can graduate from this place with a 4.0, it's not enough to ensure anything for you. It means that even if you do get the dream job you want or the law school you want or the med school you want, even if you get those things, it's not enough to keep you and your life and your heart safe. It's just not enough. Jesus is. Jesus is enough. Jesus is good enough. Jesus is strong enough. And do you know why? You've been raised with him. He conquered death. If you show me a job offer that's conquered death, I will talk with you, okay? He has conquered death. Security is in him. That means that your desire for stability and peace can actually only happen when you seek him, not when you seek after these other things. It's when your attention and your desires are focused on him. Security is one aspect that Jesus is our life. The second thing is, is glory. We, we started with this idea that um, we should seek the things that are above where Christ is in 
glory. The, the story of Jesus begins and ends in glory. And I don't know how familiar you are with thinking about kind of the big picture of God's story and our story. But the big picture begins with God in himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, living together in mutual glory. And, and what happens is that out of love for you and me, this Son leaves glory. He abandons glory. He says no to his own glory and is born as this baby, Jesus into humility and poverty and the mud and dust of a manger. It's the one who knows glory, is born as this vulnerable little baby in the most humble way possible, having been rejected by everyone else. So it doesn't even have a place to lay. And, and this Jesus in his life, which is described in, in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he, he lives this life which is marked by these incredible moments of displaying the glory of God. Like people who are sick, touch him, and then they're all of a sudden better. Like he stands in front of the tomb of a dead man and says, Lazarus, come out, and he wakes up from the dead and walks out of the tomb. He lived a life of glory. And, and then this Jesus who, who dies for us, who doesn't just sink away from glory down to the earth, but eventually ends up buried under the earth, is raised from the dead in victory, and after a time he ascends in glory to where he is now, seated at the right hand of the Father. And the claim of the Bible, the truth of the gospel, is that this Jesus will actually come back to this place again. He was in heaven, he came down, now he's back in heaven, and he's actually coming back for Act 4. But in Act 4, he's not going to be quietly born into a manger. In Act 4, trumpets are going to sound in the heavens that is going to ring in the ears of everyone, even enough to raise the dead to life. And he will descend in glory on the clouds of heaven. And because Jesus is your life, Paul can say, when Jesus appears, you also will appear with him in glory. His day of glory, if you know Jesus, is your day of glory. But part of, what, part of what we believe about our eternal hope, it, it, it's not just that if you believe in Jesus and trust in him, then you'll get to be with him in that kind of fully revealed face-to-face -face intimacy with Jesus where you'll live forever in paradise, that part of the glory is actually that you yourself will experience a life of glory. If you want to have your mind blown and be really stressed out, read 1 Corinthians 15. This is where Paul talks about what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back on this day of glory and we are raised to glory with him, that you will be alive and you will have a body, like a real physical body, but it's going to be different. It's going to be imperishable. It's going to be powerful. It's going to be filled with the power of the Spirit of God. You're actually meant for glory. You're actually meant for glory. C.S. Lewis famously says in, in The Weight of Glory that if you were to see another person now, the way they will be on that day, you would be tempted to fall on your face and worship them. That is the glory in store for the believers of Jesus, for those who belong to him. That's the glory that's in store for us. There's a part of each of us that longs for this kind of glory. And one of the sad things about our brokenness and our sinfulness is that our experience of this longing for glory is always corrupted and always tainted by sin. So that those people who achieve greatness do so by treading on other people. They want to exert their glory, their power, their position, their greatness, their wealth, their privilege over others. And this is the story of humanity. 
and it's a really broken story. But there is a part of it that is actually good and true, and there's going to become a day where you will be great, and you will be full of life and power and the Spirit and glory, but it will be good and perfect and righteous and all pointed towards the celebration of others and the love and worship of Jesus himself. Show me a job description that promises you an imperishable, powerful, spirit-filled body, and we can talk. Only in Christ is glory in store for you. That's why we should seek him and not these other things. So, so it sort of begs the question, right, how do, we, how do we do it? How do we seek? How do we deliberately focus our attention and our desires on Christ in a world that is constantly distracting us and detracting us and pulling our attention on other things, okay? Uh, I want to say three things here. The first two, I, I basically say the same things every week. You ever notice that? I say the same things all the time. Spoiler alert, I'm about to do it, okay? Um, the, the first thing I want to say is this, this is this week's reason why if you are a Christian, you need to prioritize relationships with other Christians. This is this week's reason why if you're a Christian and you're pursuing a dating relationship, you need to pursue it with someone who shares your faith. Now, let me be careful here, okay? Because this can sound kind of judgmental. This can sound a little bit like Christians think we're better than others. We're not. We're not. But if our life is about seeking Jesus, about trying to deliberately focus our attention and our desire on God, you'd better have the closest people in your life be people who are going to help you. Because it's just that hard. Because so many things are distracting you. You better have people in your life who are going to encourage you in that, who are going to hold you accountable to that, who are going to know how you're struggling, who are going to celebrate the victories of that with you. You better have close people in your life like that, or there's no way you can do it, because it's just that hard. Like in the rest of Colossians and most of the Bible, the you seek, this second person imperative verb, it's plural. You all, all you guys, together, seek him. We need to do it together, okay? The, the second thing that I say all the time, and is, this is this week's reason why Christians make a life of reading God's word daily. If seeking the things that are above means thinking about Jesus, there's a whole book about him. And if you think you can know him and seek him while ignoring the explicit content that God has given you to learn about him and to know him and experience in him, you're crazy. This is why we read God's word. We don't read it because we're supposed to. We don't read it because we'd better. We read it because we want to know him more. We want to know him more. The third thing, and this is a little more specific, and I, I hope you'll do this with, with a friend. Uh, you're going to have a chance to do this in your small groups if you go to small group this week. Is, is I want to I ask you with, with a friend to have a conversation about, uh, let's just say this, the, the two of the biggest things in your life that distract you or detract your attention and your desire away from God. What is it right now in your life is the thing that you are seeking? What is the thing right now that you are putting too much attention, too much longing into that is not Jesus? It is really helpful to understand what, that is, what is going on in your own life like that. It's really helpful to say it out loud, and it's really helpful to have someone else who cares about you be able to ask you about it and to pray for you and to encourage you, and to walk alongside you. You're probably not the only one struggling with that thing. And I really want this community to be more and more the kind of place where we can learn how to talk openly with our friends about the things that are really, really hard. 
I want this kind of community to come place where we can talk to our friends about the pressures we're feeling with our boyfriend, our addictions to pornography, our out-of-control drinking, the loneliness, the anxiety that we're feeling because we don't have that job yet, the way that every time we turn into paper, we feel crushed. I want this to be the kind of community where we can honestly talk about that. Sort of, we need, we're all feeling it. We're all going through these things. Don't just stay, don't just stay on the surface. Be the kind of friends who want to help each other seek God by addressing these things. I, uh, I grew up on James Bond movies. One summer, me and my dad just watched all the James Bond movies. That's what we, that's what we did that summer. And, and I was thinking this, this morning about a, a James Bond movie called Never Say Never Again, which is actually a straight-up remake of Thunderball, which is either the second or the third one. Thunderball, great, original, Sean Connery classic. There's all these other James Bonds, and then now old Sean Connery is James Bond again. He's not quite as, you know, jacked as he, as he used to be. But there's this, there's this scene in Never Seen Ever Again where James Bond is trying to, you know, crash this fancy casino party fundraiser, and he's in his, um, you know, dapper tuxedo, much like many of you were this weekend. And uh, the doorman is not going to let him in because he's not on the list. And he grabs him and he throws him in a closet and he puts his hand like this and he places a small metal box in his hand. And he tells him that this is a bomb that's got these super sensitive gyroscopes. And if he moves his hand even an inch, he's going to die. And then Bond like, goes in the rest of the casino. And this dude for like three hours focuses all his attention and all his strength on just not moving his hand. And, of course, at the end, James Bond comes back and grabs it. It's his cigarette box, and he, and he leaves. And this guy realizes that it was, like, all for nothing. Like, this is what it can feel like to try to follow God. Like, totally exhausting, totally arbitrary, alone in a dark room that no one can see, and it's ultimately going to be futile, right? That's kind of what it can feel like to follow God. Here's how Jesus describes what it's like to follow God. You know what he says? He says things like, come to me, seek me, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, I'll give you rest. The invitation of Jesus is to seek him because he is the only one worthy of our attention. He's the only one worthy of our desire. And actually, in seeking him, do we experience this fullness of abundant life in God that is promised to us. It's actually in the seeking of him that we experience it. So seek him. Seek the Lord who loves you, who invites you to come to him, who promises you that when you seek him, you'll find him. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, thank you for the gift of this night, and thank you for the invitation, the challenge, the command to seek you. Lord, it is, you know how hard it is because you know how easily our hearts are pulled away from you. Please help us to bear one another's burdens, to be friends to each other in the kind of ways that would help us to fight this fight of faith and to seek you. And we thank you and praise you that when we do, we'll experience real security that when we do, we'll experience the real hope of glory. Thank you that when we do, we'll experience the fullness of life that you promise us because we'll find you when we look for you. Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.